You're listening to audio from Redemption Church of Houston. We are a people who believe that Jesus has invited everyone into his radically inclusive, world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. Before we get started this morning, I want to invite you into this reminder. It's really kind of the summary of the entire sermon. So if you want to hear this 30 seconds and then check out, you have permission to do that. Only God can judge you. Um, But that this is a God who is, above all else, a loving God, and a God who is, above all else, a relational God. A God who has um, gone to great lengths to the fancy word for this is condescend himself, um, which means exactly what it sounds like, to debase himself, to lower himself, to put up with our shenanigans in order to be with us. Because God loves us as we are. God loves us. Um. We see that in our text today, that at the end of the Exodus, we see a God who dwells and is present among the people. And as we're going to look at, this is a very imperfect people, um, a radically imperfect people, as it were, that have seen some tremendous and miraculous things from God. They had literally walked through this sea as if on dry ground, and um, and yet they... uh, questioned God, they doubted God, they wondered if they ought to entrust themselves to God. And so I want to remind you this morning that God loves you. Like really and actually God loves you. And that is a very real and firm foundation to live your life on. No matter what comes your way, there's going to be really great times going to be really hard times. I know there are several of you in this room right now that are planning for the celebration of your life. There are several of you in this room that are planning for mourning. And through all of that, through the best moments of life, through the worst moments of life, the God of love has assured us that he is with us and that he is for us. Amen. We can all go eat hot dogs now. (laughs) Um. The point of today's sermon, we had talked about this last week, but that the Exodus shows us that God is a liberating God of love. And so last week, we looked at the notion that God is a liberating God, and we saw that very clearly in the Exodus story as this people who had been enslaved enslaved and oppressed are freed and liberated by these miraculous and these big acts of God. But this week, part two of the Exodus is how God liberates them into a relationship with himself. That the liberation is not just out of slavery, it is into relationship. 
And this is what the book of Exodus in its entirety it has for us. You know, if you are um, reading with us, we've been reading through the Old Testament, and this is usually where if you're like on the, I'm going to read the Bible in a year plan or whatever those things are, and you get through Exodus, and you're like, great, and we get out of the sea, and then we get into the desert, and there's some manna, and you're like, okay, 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 okay. And then all of a sudden, you get these like chapters on chapters on chapters of like, and take this wood and carve a rose petal into it, and it should be six feet long and eight inches wide, and you're like, and it just goes on and on and on. You get all these like really specific instructions on building a giant tent, and then some golden calf stuff happens, and that's kind of excited, but then we go back into like, and then they built the tent, and they built it exactly as the Lord instructed them to, and you get chapters of them doing exactly what God had just told them to do, and you're like, this is really tedious, and you think, finally, we get to the end of Exodus, we can get on with some action, and you hit the book of Leviticus, and you're like, oh my gosh, will this ever end? And then you finish Leviticus if you're like really faithful to Jesus, and then you hit the book of Numbers, and it begins with like this tremendous accounting of the people of God, and you're like, oh my gosh, my whole Bible reading thing is now off the rails, none of this matters anymore, and we usually somewhere in this window get lost, um, but stick with us, okay? So if you got lost this week in your Bible reading, I want to encourage you, like, hey, that's okay, most of us did, that's pretty normal, we're going to jump, uh, jump in again in the book of Deuteronomy, <laughs> right? I know, okay, it's going to be really helpful. So if you have uh, fallen off the wagon, or if you'd like to jump on the wagon with us, you can at any time. You can go to redemptionhou.com slash today, and there's all sorts of information that you can find there. You can find today's text there. You can find a bunch of announcements there, and you can find a link to this Bible reading plan that we're on as we journey through the Old Testament together. Um, but it's good to be with you this morning. This is a national holiday where we uh, celebrate hot dogs or something. I don't know, uh, freedom and eagles. Um, the unintended irony of reading through Israel's liberation on a weekend where we are having a slow and quiet week because a lot of us have work off on this Independence Day that is coming is not lost on me. Together this week, if you read along with us, we have followed Israel into or out of exile and out of slavery, but they're not going into independence. The, the people of God's liberation was not a liberation into independence. In fact, it's quite the opposite. The people's liberation was a liberation into dependence. And we encounter this in this liberating God in a very radical way. Um, I think there's something here for us to learn. Because as Israel is delivered, it's like almost the second they get out of the water, they cross the sea, like the world's superpower army has been destroyed on their heels by God. They've experienced this miraculous liberation. One of the first things they begin to do is they begin to hurl all of their expectations about who God is and what God is going to do for them. And if God doesn't meet this certain criteria, they're out. And something in Israel's expectations of Yahweh, I can't help but see in myself. Expectations that if God really actually loved me, then why did he let this happen to me? Or if, if God really actually loves me, then he'll give me this. He'll do this for me. He'll behave in this way. An expectation of this is what God is actually like, and so this is what God actually ought to do for me. And what I end up doing is I end up creating a God who exists in my own image or a God that I intend to manipulate and control, because deep, 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 deep down, I really wonder, like the people of Israel, does God really actually care for me? Does God really actually want what's best for me? Is God's interest really my flourishing? 
because I wonder if maybe I could do this better on my own. And so our, my first big point for us today is that freedom from the empire of Pharaoh means freedom into the embrace of Yahweh's presence. And, and this idea, um, maybe it seems really obvious, maybe it doesn't, but as good Americans, or maybe you're terrible Americans, I don't know, maybe you're not even Americans, that's fine. Um, but one of the things that's just ingrained into our DNA in this country is this idea of freedom. And no one ever actually stops long enough to ask, wait, what does freedom even mean? And what do we mean by that word? And then you find out that Democrats and Republicans mean very different things by freedom. And they both love freedom, but they have a different idea of how that ought to be worked out. And we end up hating each other and doing all sorts of un-Jesus-like things to each other. But freedom for the people of Israel, freedom for God's people, freedom for the people of Jesus is not freedom to go out and do whatever the heck you want. It's freedom into a loving relationship of dependence on God. It's freedom into relationship. It's freedom into communion with divine love. Freedom and divine communion, or sorry, liberation from slavery and entering divine communion are one and the same. Without divine communion, you only find yourself going back to enslavement. Right, and so we see this in this story of the Exodus. They cross the Red Sea, they get out into the desert, and they're like, hello, they're in a desert. And they got a bunch of like gold, which is helpful, but also like you can't eat gold. And so here they are in the desert, and they literally, the first thing they do is they go, oh, cool. So God, you let us out here just to die. Were there not graves deep enough in Egypt? So you brought us out in the middle of the desert, right? And so you have this really sarcastic response to God. And they're, they're thirsty and they're hungry and they wonder, will God actually provide for us? And so God does this thing where he provides them with uh, manna and he provides them with quail and he gives them water from a rock and it's really great and miraculous and cool. And yet, I think if we will allow ourselves to enter this story, we will see that this, this desert motif is a metaphor. It's a metaphor that is, that is inviting you and me to understand our world in a certain way. Because when you, when you strip the empire out of the world, what you suddenly realize is, whoa, 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 we're in a wasteland. It's a desert that without God and without empire, there is nothing for me. And so I either have to cling to God and depend on God and entrust myself to God to give me like the food that I need for today, or I have to go back to the empire and serve the empire and work towards that in order to provide for myself. And Israel, almost immediately, once liberated, looks back to Egypt and begins to grumble and begins to go, man, we had it pretty good back then when we were slaves and oppressed and beaten every day. At least we had food to eat. And the desert stands as this perfect representation for what life is actually and really like when you stop pursuing the American dream or when you uh, slow down long enough to really ask some hard questions or when you are on the other end of the empire's dominance. And all of a sudden, you realize that the world is a wasteland, and there's not really a whole lot out there for you apart from God, and you're surrounded by death. And Israel begins to see the world for what it is, and they begin to clamor once again for oppression. This wildling of a God has led them into the middle of nowhere and has asked this people to trust him. And is this not the invitation that Jesus is, is giving us? 
I need you to follow me. I need you to entrust your life to me. And I need you to live in a radically different and upside down way that's not always going to serve your best interest. And I need you to trust me that this is actually the way to live. So much of what happens in this scene with Israel is a picture of what it looks like to follow God. There is a real cost to following Jesus of Nazareth. There's a real cost to following the God of the Israelites. We don't get to live in the illusion of the empire any longer. So there is this uh, classic film called The Matrix, and I say classic because it's almost 25 years old, guys. There are people in this room that weren't born yet when it came out. I'm just saying, oh, there we go. Right? (laughs) Some of y'all are like, The Matrix, never heard of it. And some of y'all are like, oh my gosh, I'm so old. I would be some of y'all. So The Matrix, not the trilogy. The trilogy is trash. The new one is just a redoing of the first one. It's also trash. But the first one is brilliant. It's amazing. And in The Matrix, we're uh, introduced to this really fanciful idea that AI has taken over the world. Imagine that. I can't, it was silly back in 1999, the things that we thought of. Right, so like the AI has like taken over these machines and they have enslaved humanity and the way that they keep, like they use humanity as like batteries, but the way that they keep humanity like docile and keep them from rebelling against the machines is they plug them into the computer and the computer like lets them live this illusory life that just the perfect state happens to be the year of 1999 in like these cities and stuff. And, and that is called the matrix. It is this world that's been pulled over humanity's eye and, and some people get to wake up they like know enough or they see enough or they understand like there's something not right here and some people from the outside can come into the matrix, into the computer system and actually like give you a choice to wake up. And so they, there's this moment where the hero of the story, his name is Neo and he has this opportunity as he meets this guy named Morpheus. He's like this prophet figure. And he's like, hey, all I can offer you is the truth. What do you want? If you want to stay in the matrix, if you want to stay blind, if you want to keep living the illusion, then take the blue pill. But if you want to wake up, if you're ready to live in reality, take the red pill. So Neo takes the red pill and his face melts off and he goes into a mirror and it's really crazy and everyone's like, wait, what am I watching right now? What is happening? Um, but what happens is when you wake up and you realize that the world is actually this like, hollow, like this uh, nuclear wasteland and that humanity has been like driven underground by these machines and that they just have like rags for clothes and they eat this like slop and you realize like, oh wow, the real world is way worse than the illusion that I was living in, but it's real. So there's this moment uh, later on in the movie where Neo encounters this fellow person living in the real world, and this guy is like looking back, going, man, and there's this famous line, why, oh, why didn't I take the blue pill? Right? And this is exactly what's going on with Israel. Israel has been freed. They've been liberated from oppression. They are free from empire, and they are entering communion with Yahweh, and they realize that they're living in a wasteland, and they're sitting there going, why, oh, why didn't I take the blue pill? We had it so much better in our oppression. And this is exactly the choice that you and I face each and every day. Will I actually entrust myself to Jesus of Nazareth and believe that this world is a wasteland and that the empire will not actually satisfy me and entrust my daily bread to God? Or will I live into the empire, live into enslavement, live into oppression? So this lesson is uh, an important one. 
before we continue, I, I want to take a detour here because God does provide. He gives them manna. It's like this flaky stuff that shows up on the ground in the morning. And he says, hey, gather enough of it for the day, but don't gather too much and don't keep it. Right? Don't try and hoard it. And then I'll give you more the next day. Seems simple enough, right? But them being exactly like we would be, they're like, well, I could get a little extra and it'll be fine. Or I could just save a little bit and for tomorrow just in case and it'll be fine. And anytime that happens, it goes wrong. And, and the inability to trust God for provision day after day after day, really hard. And if you read Exodus, you're probably reading it, and you're like, man, these Israelites, they're morons. What, how could you do that? And yet, like, we are supposed to be reading this story and realizing, like, no, no, that's, that's me. I'm the dude out there on the Sabbath, like, trying to scrounge up the manna, and then it turns to worms or whatever. Because it's really, 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 really hard to trust God in the middle of the wasteland. It's really, really, really hard to believe that what God did for me yesterday is the same thing that he'll do today and is the same thing that he'll do tomorrow. It's hard to believe that God is actually and really going to come through for you because at the foundation is, and I shared this with you all last week, it's really hard to believe that God actually loves me, that God actually cares for me, that God actually wants my good and my flourishing. This broken world, when stripped of all of its trappings of the empire, right, the glitz and the glamour and the, I don't know, whatever your empire is, maybe it's a PhD, maybe it's a certain position, maybe it's Facebook likes or followers, maybe it's status, maybe it's wealth, whatever that might be, this promise that, hey, no, no, you, you can find life here, it's all an illusion, and when we take that and we strip it back, and this is usually done for us at some point in our life when something traumatic and awful happens and we see the world for what it actually is, we recognize that it's just all a wasteland. And we find ourselves thirsty and hungry and weak and needy. And we wonder, where will we turn? And the option is we turn to God who's there ready to receive us or we go back. And so I shared this in the past, but it's a lesson that continues to come up over and over and over again. <laughs> Maybe there's something there that's telling. But uh, my wife has had some significant health issues throughout her life. At one point, she had had some, she was born with like um, a congenital issue with her hips, and so as she grew older, her hips grew out of socket and were like dislocated. And so by the time she was 20, she had to have like this major reconstructive surgery on her hips. Um, she did that, and it bought her a couple of years, but here we were again about seven or eight years later. We were a couple of years into our marriage, and her hips were causing her some significant problems. And she was a nurse, so she's walking 12 hour, working 12-hour shifts on her feet, and she's got severe pain in her hips. And so we ended up having to have um, a procedure done. And this procedure made us, like, we had to leave our super cool, trendy um, flat in Montrose. I call it a flat just because that feels even more trendy and super than the rundown apartment that it actually was. Like, we had to leave Montrose, and we had to move out to Katy, super cool, awesome Katy, where all the hipsters want to live, out in Katy, um, with my mom, right? And so I celebrated my 30th birthday at my mom's house, and I love my mom. My mom is great, and us moving back in with my mom was, was actually a fantastic experience, but I also, at, as I turned 30, I'm sitting here going, wow, what, what uh, is going on here? Uh, this P&P injection that she had done failed, 
She ended up having to have a full hip replacement. Uh, I'm breaking all sorts of HIPAA codes here this morning. Um, And I remember this moment as she's like in pain again, and we realized the injection didn't work and something more more serious intervention is going to have to happen. We're out in Katy. Our lives at the age of 30 feel like I've given my life to God and in service as like a minister, and yet here we are. I'm like, what the crap, God? Like if I can be honest for just a second, I probably said it in stronger language than that. And I remember that moment, I got so angry at God that my response was not that I don't believe in you, but that I wish I didn't believe in you. I'm so angry with you that I wish you didn't even exist because how could you let this happen to us? And I wept with God and I was just uh, ferocious, Uh, really angry. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Vocabulary. And in this moment, as I'm literally um, on my face weeping at my wife's bed, I, uh, right, when I say this, hear what I actually mean. But Jesus spoke to me, not in like an audible, like don't worry. But this, this out of nowhere thought came into my head and into my heart and brought some real peace and some real conviction. And I can only attribute that to the work of the Holy Spirit and the voice of Jesus. And it was just simply this, am I enough? Brandon, am I enough? Because if you have me, and you do have me, if you have me, but you don't have the super cool, trendy place in Montrose, and you don't have like the super sexy job that makes you bukus of money where you can pull up in a, I don't know, whatever cool people pull up in. If you don't, okay. <laughs> if you don't have the status, you don't have the social standing, you don't have the money, you don't have the security, you don't have the whatever it is that you think you need that I'm not giving to you, am I still enough even if you don't have that? And let's flip that around. If you have wealth, if you have position, if you have status and you don't have me, do you have anything at all? If your wife has her health but she doesn't have me, what does she have? And do you have me and you have a chronic illness, what do you need? Am I not the healer? Am I not the resurrector? And I, am I not the giver of life? And I think like Israel, I have expectations of God. I have expectations of what God will do and when God will do it. And as Israel departs Egypt, they depart with expectations and assumptions of how things will go. They leave with an agenda And they very quickly find out that God's going to do God's own thing in God's own way and God's own timing because, like, he's God. And so they are provided for, they grumble, uh, things immediately don't go so well. And then they get to this mountain, the, the, the place that they've been journeying to, and it's this crazy picture in Exodus chapter 19. And the presence of God descends on the mountain. And basically, essentially, the story goes, um, I'm, I'm going to invite the people up. I want to talk to them face to face is the words that God uses. And the people of Israel are like, no, we're good. Because uh, when God shows up, he shows up in like fire and thunder, and it's pretty terrifying, right? And so they like all of us would are like, no way. 
And so they send Moses, and he's this mediator, and he goes back and forth, and you get the Ten Commandments. And, and, and here at the heart of the Pentateuch, right, the Pentateuch is just the, the name of the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, or the English Bible. At the heart of this story is God coming down to be with his people, and they say, no, 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 we're good. We want a mediator. And so the rest of the story is um, God providing them with this mediation of this tent that will cover his presence and this priestly thing that will be the mediator between him and the people. Um, uh, A scholar named Mako Nagasawa says it this way, the tabernacle and then later the temple was not God's plan A, it was plan B. God wanted a temple people, a people who were themselves the temple. You should be hearing New Testament language here. A people with whom he talked face to face he did not want a people with a temple. But their expectations of God were different. You know, we don't want that. We don't trust that that would actually be good for us. We don't trust that you actually really love us. And suddenly we realize, wait, hold on. God is who God is. He isn't whatever we want him to be. And we're really forced to answer that question. Does God really love me? Does God really want my flourishing? Because I'm kind of at the whim of him. And isn't this interesting? We see this with Jesus, right? Jesus, I think most of us in here would say, God of the Old Testament, I don't know if he loves me or not. But Jesus, that's different, even though like Jesus says, I am the God of the Old Testament. That's a whole other conversation. Jesus loves me, surely. And yet, watch, when Jesus shows up, is he what anyone wants or expects? Like anyone. His mom's like, I thought you were going to be something different. His disciples are like, we thought you were going to behave differently. The Pharisees were certainly not in favor of Jesus. The entire like temple complex hated Jesus. Like the world's response to God is, no, 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 no. You do not meet our expectations. You've got to go. And they kill him. And 2,023 years later, we think, no, no, but we're better. We've got it. And I think we forget sometimes that Jesus disappointed everyone. Jesus didn't meet everyone's expectations. And yet, he invites everyone into communion still. In spite of their rejection. And so my second point, and I've got three, in case you're wondering, wait, wow, where is this going? How long we got here? I've got hamburgers to, that's the last barbecue joke, I swear. Uh, Point two, invitation into communion with God is an invitation into everything you want and need. Right? That's a big statement, I realize. But this is what Jesus is offering. This is what the God of Israel is offering. Your soul satisfaction. Resurrection from the dead a body that will never experience chronic illness again, life and communion and love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and justice. This is everything you want and need and are spending your life clamoring for. And Jesus is like, I'm here. Am I not enough? And so much of what I think Israel begins to realize and is rebelling against when they rebel against God is that this is a God that cannot be manipulated or controlled. This is a God who has his own agenda 
and is not going to just do what we ask him to or tell him to. And so they decide, you know what? I think we'll make up our own. And so you get to Exodus chapter 32, and I'm going to read this for us because it's a famous one, but I think it's important to read. Exodus chapter 32, verse 1. So the people saw that Moses was taking a really long time to come down from the mountain. So they, hey, stay away. We don't want to talk to God face to face. We don't even want to hear his voice because it's like it's terrifying. So Moses, you go deal with it. So Moses goes up and he's just been gone. MIA, he's ghosted them for, I can't remember how long it is, several like weeks. And so they gathered around Aaron and they said to him, come on, make us gods who can lead us. We need someone to show us where to go in this wasteland, someone to provide for us in this desert, so make a God that can lead us. As for this man, Moses, who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't have a clue what's happened to him. And Aaron said to them, right, so this is, Aaron is like Moses' brother, he's like the high priest, he is the father of all the priests, and so he like shames them, right? Nah, all right, take out the gold rings from your ears and of your wives and of your sons and your daughters and bring them all to me. And so all the people took out the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron and he collected them and he tied them up in a cloth. Then he made a metal image of a bull calf. And the people declared, these are your gods, Israel, the gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So, so sometimes we, see, we hear about the gold calf and we think that what Israel is doing is they're like completely rejecting God and they're like just turning to all these other false gods. No, no, no. What they're doing is they are creating another God and then putting all of the things that they wanted Yahweh to do for them and that Yahweh did do for them and they're putting them on that new God because they don't like this one. And throughout Israel's history, so much of their idolatry that we will spend time talking about as we go through the Old Testament is not a full rejection of Yahweh. It is, it is a marriage of worshiping other gods and Yahweh at the same time. These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And so when Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf. Then Aaron announced, tomorrow will be a festival to the Lord. They got up early the next day and offered up entirely burnt offerings and brought well-being sacrifices. The people sat down to eat and drink, and then they got up to celebrate, which is just a euphemism for what people do at, like, uh, I don't know, festival parties in the desert. I'll let you fill in the blanks. Earmuffs. And so they, uh, so a calf would have been like the seat of a deity. This would have been like a, a throne. So this is replacing the ark. So there's all these like, we don't want that, we want this. We don't want it that way, we want it this way. We don't want it when you're ready, we want it when we're ready. So all of this changing of expectations. And they reject the God of the Exodus because Yahweh does not operate on their timetable in the manner that they like. So they make up a God that will. We do the same thing. Because following Jesus is hard. But didn't he tell us it would be? Hey, you want to know what it's like to follow me? You're going to take up your instrument of death. And you're going to follow me to death. You want to know what it's like to follow me? If you want to find your life, you have to lose it. Whoever tries to keep his life will actually lose it. But whoever loses his life will gain it for eternal life. Following Jesus is hard. That doesn't mean it's bad. So often I'm tempted to believe that if I had a different life, it would somehow give me life that a life that I did not have, if only I were wealthier, if only I lived in California, if only it wasn't 117 degrees outside, 
If only our family didn't have to live with the burden of chronic disease. If only we lived in a different house. If only we had a pool. If only, if only, if only, if only. Life is not out there. It is right here. And this is a phrase that I've come back to over and over again. I ran into it um, a couple months ago from John Mark Comer. It's this idea that what Jesus is offering you is not a different life that is somehow out there. And if you follow him today, everything is going to magically change. But instead, in the life that you are living right now, Jesus meets you. He sustains you. He communes with you. And he carries you towards this glorious future that we have in him. So freedom into Yahweh is freedom from dependence on everything else that offers the illusion of security. And watch how God responds. They have this epic failure Hey, first commandment, don't worship other gods. First thing they do after getting that commandment is they worship other gods, right? Doing great. In Exodus 34, God commits God's self to Israel and by doing so to humanity. Because remember, Israel is the vehicle through which God is going to bless the rest of humanity. And God is meeting Moses again on the mountain, and God is, uh, Moses says, show me your glory. And he's like, bro, you can't handle my glory. Take a seat, cover your eyes, you'll see the backside of me. But as I do, I'm going to pass before you, and I'm, gonna, I'm going to proclaim my name to you. I'm going to remind you who I am and what I am like. And he says this to Moses, and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, this is God's covenant name with his people a God who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Right, right, like this, can we just pause here for a second? Let me read that one more time. This is the God of the Old Testament who says, you wanna know what I'm like? I'm merciful, I'm gracious, I'm slow to anger, I'm abounding in committed love and faithfulness, and I keep steadfast love for thousands upon thousands upon thousands of generations. When Jesus shows up on the scene, we should not be shocked that this is what God is like. When Jesus shows up on the scene, his response is like, guys, why don't you recognize me? This is who I've always been. I am a merciful and compassionate God of love. And of course it goes on. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Right, and I've gotten some weird questions about this sometimes. So like if I'm sinning, does that mean my kids are cursed and you get some weird like, no, no, I, I think the contrast here is meant to be like, no, no, God is a God of justice. He will not just let us go around and just violate the world and be like, oh, well, I guess it's fine because I'm merciful. We talked about that a few weeks ago. You can go back into sermons on hell to find out more about that. But notice the contrast here. I will visit, I will be merciful to thousands of generations and I will revisit the iniquity to three. Or was it four? Above all, I am merciful. I am compassionate. My grace exceeds my desire for justice. And God's response to Israel's epic failure and rejection of him is he recommits God's self to them anyways. Because that's who God is, whether you like it or not. 
God does not reveal himself here primarily, primarily in terms of his power. He doesn't flex. He's not like, don't you, don't you know who I am, Moses? You better go tell him. But he reveals himself in terms of relationship because that's who he is. He's a God of love, a God of communion. And so in this last point, we see that our relationship with God is not dependent on our showing up and having it all together, but is rather dependent on God's commitment to continue showing up for us even when we don't have it together. That God is carrying us in our weakness and in our failures, and when we get it right and when we get it wrong, God carries us nonetheless because that's who God is. We are held fast by God's commitment and love for us, even in the face of our disloyalty and difference to him. And so Exodus ends like this. When Moses had finished all the work, the cloud of God's presence covered the meeting tent, and the Lord's glorious presence filled the dwelling. And Moses couldn't enter the meeting tent because the cloud had settled on it, and the Lord's glorious presence filled the dwelling. And whenever the cloud rose from the dwelling, the Israelites would set out and followed their source of life and sustenance and flourishing. But if the cloud didn't rise, then they didn't set out until the day that it rose, and the Lord's cloud stayed over the dwelling during the day with the lightning in it at night and clearly visible to the whole household of Israel at every stage of their journey. And Exodus ends the way that it began. I am freeing you so that you can be mine. And Jesus offers the same thing. You have been liberated so that you can be mine. And divine deliverance always moves us towards divine relationship. This is our third and final point. That the point of all of this is love. That a people of love would live among the God of love. And emancipation from the empire of Pharaoh means liberation into the, the embrace of God's presence. This is what the Exodus teaches us. Life with God is always the goal. Okay, last practical 30 seconds here. Fast forward, New Testament, you have the Spirit. Jesus has gifted us with God's presence. Even now, even in this moment, even though it might feel like a wasteland, it might feel like a desert, God is with us. God goes with us in our good moments and in our bad moments, whether we feel it or whether we don't feel it. And so each and every day, you have a real invitation to experience the presence of God, to enter the presence of God in prayer. And just be. Allow yourself to be loved. Allow yourself to be seen. Allow yourself to be known. Allow yourself to be transformed by the God who is love. Even when we don't realize it, we don't sense it, we don't feel it, God is still with you, still working for your good. Coming back into his presence day after day after day is an act of your entrusting yourself to this God and his promises. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, 
get coffee with a pastor, or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.